making this video to warn the public that it is in grave danger of being scammed by pretend fixes to our computerized election system. Well, thanks for that warning. That's why I'm making the broadcast. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, California. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. We'll be talking about Pennsylvania today, I suspect. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF in Minnesota. And I suspect we'll be talking about them as well. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, But let us start with some good news. Before my guest shows up and depresses all of us, Desi Doyen, you're <laughs> yes. off the hook. You don't have to be the one to depress us all today. Oh, I'm so glad. She'll she'll do just fine. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so why would she do that? Well, we've been back from my uh, family emergency hiatus uh, for a week now, and it has been such an insane week given our insane president and the uh, not insane at all impeachment inquiry underway and Donald Trump's insane pullout from northern Syria, leaving our Kurdish allies to face the Turkish invasion uh, that Trump insanely greenlighted. And, of course, his announcement that the contract to hold the G7 summit of world leaders next year would be granted to, oh, what do you know, the Trump National Doral Resort in Florida, for which, uh, incredibly, he caught so much flack from Republicans for that over the weekend. Donald Trump actually reversed a decision, Desi Doyen. I know, it's kind of shocking. He never does that. Uh, anyway, with all of that uh, going on uh, upon my return, we have yet to discuss Plan B for getting rid of this guy. Um, and that is uh, concerns about our voting system. Uh, as needed in the event that Trump somehow isn't removed from office. And by the way, yes, even if he is, we still need to deal with the concerns about our voting system. So to that end, we will be joined by attorney and election integrity advocate, 
Jenny Cohen, well-known to you Twitter folks out there, to try and get caught up on just some of the news on that front from over the past month that we might have otherwise uh, covered on the broadcast had I been available to do so. And no, that news may not be encouraging, but I have a little bit of encouraging news to start with. Uh, So there's that. Yeah, there's that. uh, (laughs) Because, you know, before Jenny shows up, ruins everything. Um, Florida cannot prevent people with felony convictions from registering to vote if they cannot pay fines and other costs stemming from their convictions. This is from a federal judge who ruled on Friday temporarily blocking a state law, a new state law that civil rights groups have called an unconstitutional poll tax. The ruling was a rebuke to the state's Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, and its Republican-controlled legislature, according to The New York Times. Legislature uh, uh, legislators had enacted a law requiring the fine and fee payments this year after voters resoundingly approved an amendment to the state constitution last November that restored voting rights to as many as 1.5 million former felons in the Sunshine State, or in this case, about one uh, out of every five otherwise eligible African-Americans in the state. The Florida Republicans passed this law after the ballot measure to reenfranchise former felons was overwhelmingly approved by some 65 percent of voters last November. A bipartisan, a tripartisan, a multipartisan landslide in favor of reenfranchising felons in Florida. GOP lawmakers passed that law right after that in a blatant attempt to undermine those voters and to prevent some 1.5 million new perceived Democrats from voting in the state. And by the way, Uh, If those folks weren't Democrats before, they should certainly be so now, given the way Republicans have tried to block them from voting in this matter, despite that bipartisan approval of Amendment 4 across the state last November. The new GOP restriction on voting was widely seen as an attempt to suppress voting by the former felons, many of them African-Americans or Hispanics who appeared likely to support Democrats. The court's injunction technically affects only 17 plaintiffs in the suit challenging the law, all of whom said they lacked the money to pay the costs stemming from their convictions. But the principle behind the ruling applies to all people convicted of felonies and will require the state to change its repayment mandate if uh, if this decision by the uh, by the uh, judge on Friday stands that, according to Julie Ebenstein with the American Civil Liberties Union, you remember Julie Ebenstein? Yes, had she's her been on the, on the show, show before. Um, evidence in the lawsuit indicated that roughly four in five felons who have completed their sentences had unpaid fines, court costs or restitution. But what the law did was make it plain that if you can afford to pay those fines, well, you get to vote. If you can't, you don't. That is a poll tax, and the federal judge appears to have agreed. So some rich guy uh, caught committing corporate fraud or something, he'd, he'd get to vote most likely. Somebody like, say, former Florida Governor Rick Scott, now senator, who was oh, yeah. actually part of a huge Medicare fraud back the, when he was... CEO of a healthcare Yeah, company. the largest Medicare fraud of all time at the time that his company got caught doing it. That said, he 
Rick Scott was not uh, found guilty of a felony. He should have been. But still. He sh- yeah, I know. He should have been. And if he had been, I'm sure he would have been able to come out with enough money to pay off whatever fines and restitution uh, existed. So uh, he would have, you know, likely gotten to vote under this uh, under these rules. A poor person, however, sent to jail for having some marijuana on them or something who, you know, spent years in jail, unable to work while they're in jail and, you know, are charged for all manner of things by the state while in jail, essentially charged for their own incarceration, uh, they would have a harder time paying off those fees and they would not be able to vote under the Republican law. Voting rights advocates who sought the uh, Friday's ruling hailed the injunction as a crucial step towards limiting the legislature's efforts to restrict uh, to restrict access to the ballot. Florida officials had no immediate response on Friday by the uh, to the ruling by Judge Robert Hinkle of the U.S. District Court in Tallahassee. The state could challenge the injunction in a higher court. They could change the law when the legislature convenes next year or uh, postpone action until a trial, a full trial in the lawsuit, which is currently scheduled for April, until that trial produces a definitive ruling on the law's legality. So this is just a temporary injunction. But this should, at least for now, allow many to register to vote and even participate in local elections between now and next year and will hopefully hold through next year's presidential election in the Sunshine State. And I do hope the people who were blocked from registering to vote under this restriction remember who it was who blocked them. The lawsuit's plaintiffs had argued that by requiring people with felony convictions to pay legal obligations before registering to vote, that the uh, Florida legislators, the Republican legislators in Florida, had effectively created a modern version of the notorious poll taxes used to disenfranchise African-Americans during the Jim Crow era. The U.S. Constitution's 24th Amendment did away with that practice, stating that the right to vote in a federal election could not be denied for failure to pay, quote, any poll tax or other tax. In his ruling, Judge Hinkle said that a 2005 ruling in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit involving a Florida felon I mean, this was actually adjudicated already. The fact that he had to make this ruling. So this was a a 2005 ruling in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit involved a Florida felon specifically who was unable to pay restitution. And that ruling stated that, quote, access to the franchise cannot be made dependent on an individual's financial resources, period, End of story. End of sentence. Couldn't be clearer, though. Maybe the Republicans in Florida thought that uh, they'd have a more favorable court. Maybe they'll get one of uh, the the Republican judges that uh, Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump have been jamming onto into the court system or onto the stolen U.S. Supreme Court. Hey, you know, you can't win at cheating elections if you don't try. Well, and they certainly do try, don't they? Uh, The state can uh, investigate whether a former felon's claim of poverty is legit, according to the judge, and can establish a process for deciding whether and how voting rights should be restored. But, quote, what the state cannot do, wrote the judge, is deny the right to vote to a felon who would be allowed to vote, but for the failure to pay amounts that the felon has been genuinely unable to pay. 
When an eligible citizen misses an opportunity to vote, the opportunity is gone forever. The vote cannot be later cast, he wrote. The preliminary injunction is necessary to prevent irreparable harm to any such plaintiff, said the judge. Micah Kubik, the uh, executive director of ACLU of Florida, also a guest on this show in the past, as I recall, uh, said the court's decision is clear. The right to vote cannot be denied to anyone based on their inability to pay. The state must create clear and unencumbered processes that provides Florida's returning citizens the ability to vote. This, he said, is an important win for our democracy. And I couldn't agree more. Speaking of the right to vote, what about the right to have that vote counted as cast? There's an idea. Or even the right to know whether the nation's votes have been counted as the voters intended, even if they have been counted as cast. Well, that fight is, unfortunately, still ongoing and not necessarily getting any better as we barrel eyes wide shut towards 2020, though even here. I've got some good news to kick off our next segment out of my old home state of Missouri, of all places, as election integrity advocate Jenny Cohn joins us next to undoubtedly uh, bunk my high on that story as well. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Don't touch that dial. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Meet me in St. Louis, Louis, meet me at the fair. Yes, please do. Don't tell me the lies Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. So just before I was forced due to a family medical emergency to leave the air for a month in mid-September, and yes, I ended up in St. Louis, uh, we had been dealing with a number of issues around the country regarding voting machines in advance of next year's critical 2020 presidential election. Uh, One that had occurred in a special election for the U.S. House in North Carolina, a special election that was called because the first try at that election last November had to be nullified due to a Republican absentee ballot election fraud scheme that was uncovered. Uh, That one saw the uh, Republican candidate, Dan Bishop, narrowly defeat the Democrat Dan McCready in the do-over election just before uh, we had to get out of Dodge here. On election night, however, in that do-over race, something that should be impossible actually occurred or appeared to have occurred. The results actually ran backwards when they were reported by the media with the Democrat who had been leading during early counting losing about 3,000 votes at one point in the night, almost inexplicably. Well, completely inexplicably. The Republican bishops' numbers also rolled back. That should also be impossible. Those rolled back by a bit over 1,000 votes, but it was enough that moment 
to uh, turn the Democratic McCready's 1,985 vote lead into a 728 vote deficit, which he never recovered. I had reached out to MSNBC, whose lower third crawl on the screen documented that flip on video and to the North Carolina State Board of Elections for an explanation before I was called out of town. To my knowledge, however, neither ever got back to me and Bishop, the Republican, was quickly certified and sent to D.C. as the new congressman from North Carolina's 9th Congressional District. In another matter that we covered just before I left, election integrity advocates in both Pennsylvania and Georgia had been successful in using petitions and the law to force both states to do another re-examination of new 100% unverifiable touchscreen ballot marking devices that had been certified by each state. Just before leaving, we spoke with Philadelphia cybersecurity and voting systems expert Kevin Skoglin, who told us that the re-exam that Pennsylvania did was basically another scam and that the state did the second test, but they did it secretly, out of state, and with the same third-party company who approved those systems the first time, and yet again, Pennsylvania failed to do a real security and penetration test of that new system. And out here in Los Angeles, where the largest voting jurisdiction in the nation is also similarly moving to a 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen system for the first time in 2020, the county clerk registrar recorder, Dean Logan, has stopped answering my questions altogether or appearing on this show as he used to for some reason, even though a recent video of the new system plan for L.A. reveals that the computer prints a so-called paper ballot summary for a voter's approval, but then it runs that same piece of paper back up through the same printer path that printed it the first time. What election integrity advocates have described as a permission-to-cheat feature since it would allow the computer to change or add votes after a voter thinks they have approved the initial printout. But before I speak to my guest today, Jenny Cohen, for updates on all of the above and more from while I was gone, let me share some good news on this front in advance of 2020 in one of the few places right now where I can find such good news to tell this story I need to go back to 2006 and a missive that was sent to bradblog.com from a Harvey Friedman, yes, my now late father, regarding his voting experience during a state primary that summer in St. Louis County, Missouri, which is my old home county where dad and mom both voted for decades. So this is back uh, August of 2006. And uh, Dad sent in this note, uh, quote, This morning there were no primaries of significant interest in my Chesterfield, Missouri precinct, and thus the turnout was very sparse, with five election officials on hand to watch over three ESNS iVotronic voting machines, those are the touchscreen systems, and three voting booths for paper ballots to use with the ESNS Model 100 scanner. I'll note here that uh, Missouri for many years allowed voters to choose whether they wanted to vote on touchscreen or on a hand-marked paper ballot. He goes on to write, uh, and considering that at 10 this morning I was the only voter on hand, I figured it would be okay if I spent some time pulling their chain. After all, wouldn't Brad have done it had he been here? 
Uh, first, they he says, they asked me for my ID. They actually asked specifically for a driver's license. I presented them with an outdated travel agent photo ID, outdated by about six years. They said I need something that had my home address on it. Don't you have a driver's license? They repeated. I said I would prefer to use another form of ID and ask what else they would accept. They seemed confused. Now, at the time in Missouri, it was unlawful to require a uh, driver's license as your photo ID. He said they seemed confused. I said, what about a utility bill with my name and address on it? They said that would be okay. I then asked why they didn't tell me that in the first place, and I was told that this is the first time that was that that was an acceptable ID, the utility bill. Of course, I corrected them by informing them that, to my knowledge, this has been the case in Missouri for as long as I could remember, for many years. The election monitors then offered that they thought it was a good idea that everybody, everybody had a photo ID, and I told them that I thought it was a good idea if we could be sure that every vote was going to be counted. I miss him already. Uh, I asked if I could go home and get a utility bill, he writes. They said that that would be okay. And so he says, I finally opted to show them my driver's license after all. Uh, I then uh, he said, I then proceeded to use the touchscreen ESNS Ivotronic, which has a very legible so-called paper trail, but would be a bear to use for a recount, considering that my printout, which only had about four issues on it, including candidates, was over a foot long. Imagine the size of those paper rolls on a busy voting day, Dad said. Before actually casting my ballot, I informed the monitor that I had changed my mind and that I preferred to use a hand-marked paper ballot that would be scanned and thus could be easily recounted if necessary. They were happy to accommodate me, and after about five minutes of conversation and reviewing manuals, three different officials figured out how to invalidate the ballot and give me a new one. I then proceeded to cast a paper ballot. I discussed with the voting official that I had chosen to use the ballot with the uh, ink circles because that could be recounted by hand. He assured me, however, that the voting machines were all zeroed out before the voting started. I said that was interesting because I understood that a programmer could program the machine so that it did not start to work wrong until after the polls had opened. Dad was correct on that point. He assured me that in order to program the machines that there would have to be at least two election officials on hand. I asked if he felt these election officials could recognize any improper code, and he agreed they could not. I said that any beginning programmer could rig the count. As a matter of fact, I said I could probably even do it. He agreed. Quote, I guess you are right. It would be pretty easy. I could probably do it, too, he said. I then reminded him that the code was proprietary and nobody outside of the voting machine company actually had the right to review it. So much for my morning of needling election officials, wrote my dad back in uh, 2006. Well, good work, Dad. And the good news is that uh, now that my father has passed away, nobody else in St. Louis County should have to go through those gyrations just to make a point. Just before I left last month for what became a month-long hiatus due to my dad's sudden stroke and then his passing, 
I had some good news come in across the wire that I plan to cover on the next day's broadcast before I ended up being off air for a month. So it's a bit over a month old by now, but it's still good news nonetheless and very much worth noting here before I'm joined by my guest Jenny Cohn, who will no doubt have nothing but bad and maddening news for us. So first... According to St. Louis Public Radio, in September, the St. Louis County Board of Elections unanimously voted to shift towards using hand-marked paper ballots and away from touchscreen voting machines. That is very good news indeed in the largest county in the state of Missouri. The Elections Board is moving forward with a $6.9 million contract with Austin, Texas-based Heart Inner Civic to provide new voting machines and software that primarily run a real paper ballot system. The new apparatus, they write, is expected to be in place for the November 5 election. That's this fall, so next month. A small number of touchscreen machines, one per polling station, will continue to be available for people with disabilities, according to the Election Board Chair Sharon Buchanan-McClure. And, of course, that is fine. That's a requirement, by and large, of the Federal Help America Vote Act, or HAVA, that there be one disabled accessible voting system in each polling place to allow voters who may need an assistive device to be able to vote independently. Now, compare that with many states now, like Georgia and South Carolina and New Jersey and Delaware and huge important counties like Philadelphia and the swing state of Pennsylvania or Mecklenburg County in the swing state of North Carolina, and here, even in my new home county of Los Angeles, the nation's most populous county, uh, who are all now planning to move to 100% unverifiable touchscreen ballot marking devices for all voters, not just for a few disabled voters who might need them, but for all voters for some reason. Back to St. Louis Public Radio here. The uh, paper ballot method should ease some of the county's recent election day difficulties they write it will allow ballots to be printed on demand at polling places says uh, buchanan mcclure officials hope that that function will make it easier for the county to avoid running out of ballots or giving out the wrong ballots to voters which are all problems they've had in recent years well that's a great idea uh Print on demand. If you're worried about having to print in different languages, worried about having enough ballots, you don't need a touchscreen. You can do print on on demand. Now, that needs to be monitored very closely because it could allow for some ballot stuffing opportunities, but still allowing hand-marked paper ballots for every voter in St. Louis County, which is much larger, by the way, than the city of St. Louis, uh, where they run their own elections. Paper ballots for all in St. Louis County is long overdue in my old hometown where I spoke years ago about this uh, in St. Louis County and yes, on St. Louis Public Radio, urging the move to hand-marked paper ballots. About 15 years later, they're finally doing it. So it takes some time. But we're getting there. A uh, handful of heroic political activists and advocates have also been putting pressure on the county for many years in Missouri to switch to a paper ballot system. They had gone so far as to ask the Missouri General Assembly to consider banning touchscreen machines like the ones the county had been using. They consider, correctly, electronic voting to be insecure and unreliable. 
largely because it is completely insecure and completely unreliable and 100% unverifiable after an election. But that has not stopped my new home county of Los Angeles from insanely moving to such a system before next year's presidential election. So uh, win one, lose another, I guess. So with that somewhat largely good news out of the way, a lot can happen in a month in the national and state-by-state near-hand combat fight at this point for election integrity, all while I was busy with other pressing matters over the past month. So to get us sort of caught up and reset on What I missed and where we're going at this point before 2020 is a friend of mine who doesn't miss much of a thing these days, which if you followed her on Twitter, you would already know that by now. Jennifer Cohen is an attorney and election integrity advocate and Twitter activist in the San Francisco Bay Area. Her articles on election security have been published by the New York Review of Books, Who, What, Why, Salon, TYT Investigates, and yes, even at bradblog.com. Since 2016, uh, why, did something happen unusual in 2016, Jenny? She has devoted her professional efforts full-time towards investigating and exposing our wildly insecure election systems and potential solutions for them. I hope we can talk about both today. She can be contacted through her very popular Twitter account, Jenny Cohn One. Jenny Cohn, welcome back to the broadcast. Hi, Brad. How are you doing? And oh, I'm I'm so so sorry about your father. Thank you. I devastating news. I appreciate that, Jenny. Although I got to tell you, uh, being off uh, Twitter and off the grid uh, over the past month, knowing that you have been there fighting the good fight in my absence uh, gave me a great deal of comfort. So thank you for that, Jenny. Uh, oh, that's good. You uh, you put out a very helpful and uh, interesting video presentation on Twitter today, which I'll point folks towards when we uh, post today's show at bradblog.com. And I want to ask you about some of the points you made in that video. But first, very quickly, if it's possible, I want to try to get caught up on anything noteworthy that I missed while I was away uh, regarding any of these uh, state battles, uh, most notably in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Georgia, to try to ensure the right to a hand-marked paper ballot for every voter um, and the national fight for same against these uh, just horrific ballot marking devices. Where's the best place to start? Any, any, Any change in the fight against the ballot marking devices in Philadelphia since we reported last month that the uh, Commonwealth Secretary of State there had essentially rigged the so-called re-exam of those new ESNS touchscreens, touchscreens that are approved uh, for Philadelphia? Um, <clears throat> well, in Philadelphia in particular, there was uh, the petition to re-examine, but I think that was the petition for the state, and you covered that, mm-hmm. and they um, had a secret re- the state of Pennsylvania had a secret re-examination and reaffirmed its certification of the express vote mm-hmm. XL ballot mark- barcode ballot marking devices mm-hmm. um, that are particularly controversial. They all are. Yep. Um, the main thing that I've seen coming up in Pennsylvania uh, is maybe not so specific to Philadelphia, but there's there's been a lot of sort of uh, bragging that Pennsylvania is conducting risk-limiting audits, and the media is giving them some praise for this. And mm-hmm. some national, a few national election integrity groups are doing this as well. And they're really, I think, I don't know if it's deliberate or not, but they're glossing over the problem that Pennsylvania certified these uh, ESNS code ballot marking devices, which 
according to the inventor of risk-limiting audits, mm-hmm. render risk-limiting audits meaningless. So there's sort of um, yeah. And l- let me like the issue. The issue is getting a little bit buried in this faux excitement over conducting meaningless risk-limiting audits in Pennsylvania. Yeah, and that's what, and we're seeing that in a lot of these places, uh, Pennsylvania, out here in Los Angeles, Georgia. They say it's okay that we use computer-printed, computer-marked uh, paper ballots that we can't know if they were actually verified by the voter because afterwards we're going to do these so-called risk-limiting audits. And just to sort of summarize, it's a, that's a, a taking a small sample of ballots and counting them by hand and sort of expanding that count if you begin to find problems in the count and so forth. So you're, you're citing um, Professor Philip Stark from UC Berkeley who invented this protocol for risk-limiting audits, or RLAs, uh, he's saying that it is essentially, if I understand, he's saying it's a joke to do RLAs, it's a, a false panacea to, to do these? He called it uh, lipstick on a pig. Okay. The pig being the ballot-marking device. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. And the lipstick being the risk-limiting audits, which mm-hmm. he himself pioneered. Right. And, uh, I mean, the problem is that it, it's very misleading to the public. It's just sort of another, I keep calling these things a fraud on the public because they are. They're luring the public into a false sense of security that we're going to have these manual audits, which Mm -hmm. everyone has been calling for. But any type of manual audit of the paper trail Mm -hmm. is going to be meaningless if the paper trail can be hacked. And so the whole point of using paper ballots, traditional hand-marked, is that they can't be hacked. So you have an unhackable paper record to compare against the hackable Mm -hmm. electronic tally. And if you're going to have them marked by a machine instead, then um, the paper trail becomes hackable, and mm-hmm. there's no point. So, yes, experts, including Philip Stark, who mm-hmm. the pioneer of risk-limiting audits, say that we should, the leading experts almost unanimously say that we should be moving toward hand-marked paper ballots, not these machine-marked printouts. And, um, and it's unfortunately... Be- Pennsylvania didn't listen and other jurisdictions have not listened as well. Yeah, no, they they don't listen. And it's essentially, I think, what Stark is saying is that uh, if you're counting something that you don't know actually reflects the intent of the voter with a hand-marked paper ballot, you know it reflects the intent of the voter, but a computer right. mark, you, you have no idea whether the voter actually approved that uh, exactly. computer-printed mark at all. Uh, exactly. There will always yeah. be some voters who don't review these things. And in fact, ESNS itself, which is the largest vendor in the country mm-hmm. and the largest purveyor of these new electronic ballot marking devices, admitted in a presentation in Philadelphia that I found on YouTube, it admitted that it doesn't expect most voters to review the printouts because of the time that it would take to do that. Yeah. So. Yeah, they, they know. Uh, they know yeah. that people don't check these things. And even if they do, we have studies that show that uh, among those people who actually bothered to check the printout, a lot of them don't notice when the computer has changed their vote. And my problem, Jenny Cohen, has always been that even if they review the printout and even if they notice problems, uh, you know, misprinting or whatever, as has happened to me here in L.A., where a system misprinted right. four out of 12 of my votes, even if they do all those things right, you and I and Phil Stark and the people who are doing these uh, post-election spot check audits, they can't know one way or another whether those uh, ballots actually were verified correctly. Well, that's that's also true. It's really not so different. I mean, the way I think of it is with the vote-flipping paperless machines in Missis- it, was it Mississippi or Missouri? Uh, Mississippi, I think. Mm-hmm. 
um, that made the news recently, and even was even Rachel Maddow was talking about it. And um, oh, the, the, the touchscreens that the mach- they noticed on the touch screens, yeah. right? These are yeah. paperless. Right. They noticed on the touch screens that some votes were flipped, but that didn't exactly provide reassurance to the public no. just because some voters noticed this. The right. concern is always going to be that some voters don't. And so if that happens on a paper, on the paper mm-hmm. uh, record of voter intent, that's not going to be any better. It just creates a false sense of security. Mm-hmm. There will always be voters who don't look, um, and that will always be the concern. And it raises the concern the, of what happens on Election Day if a voter does notice that the computer misprinted. You know, then what? Do we take all the machines out of the, out of the precinct, well, out of the county? Exactly. I, mean, I, think, I think the people who promote these machines are sort of... Um, they try to imply that any problems would be random and scattershot, just like a, a malfunction, but they overlook that these are all, all received just like scanners and uh, touchscreen voting machines. These ballot marking devices receive their programming from centralized county computers mm-hmm. before every election, and so they could be systematically uh, hacked by insiders or corrupt outsiders to flip votes throughout the entire county or state. So if there's a problem, it's not like you can take you know, it, taking machines throughout the entire county or state yeah. is really a great option in the middle of an election. No, and as, uh, as somebody who who it happened to, I can tell you, it is very confusing on Election Day when that happens. What do you do? Who do you talk to? Did I get it wrong? Was it my fault? Uh, it's, it's, well, that's the other problem yeah. is you can't prove, there's no way to know whether it was uh, operator error, so the voter making a mistake when they were punching in on the touchscreen, mm-hmm. or computer error or deliberate hacking. There's, there's no way to really prove that because, again, as, as always, this, these touchscreens are proprietary. The software is proprietary. So um, the, the sort of ray of light, but it's not much of one, frankly, um, yeah. in Pennsylvania is that Jill Stein, um, she, she's the one who got that settlement agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, Third party, uh, gr- Green Party uh, presidential candidate right. in 2006, tried to get a recount, was blocked by Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and, and Michigan. Yeah. And unfortunately, she's a fairly controversial figure, which I say is unfortunate because I, I think there are a lot of people maybe who don't trust anything that she's behind. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's maybe not the I- ideally positioned to ch- be championing some of these issues. But in any event, um, so she did the settlement agreement with the state that said we had to have, or the state had to provide voter verifiable paper ballots. Mm-hmm. And as you know, that immediately mm-hmm. got, you know, made all, all of my hairs stand on end. Because voter verifiable paper ballots, voter marked paper ballots, even the phrase paper ballots without the hand marked prefix mm-hmm. are all now in election insider code for either unhackable hand marked paper ballots or very hackable machine printouts from ballot mm-hmm. marking devices. Yeah. So I knew this would be a problem. I even posted, everyone was celebrating this agreement, and I posted at the time on Twitter that. Uh, this is going to be a problem, and sure enough, it's been this huge problem. We have uh, 11 counties now in, in Pennsylvania, including Philadelphia, the largest. Mm-hmm. They're now moving to these barcode BMDs. Mm-hmm. And so she's swooping in and having to hang her hat, trying to contest these purchases now at the 11th hour, mm-hmm. uh, and having to hang her hat on the phrase voter verifiable. You know, what, what does voter verifiable mean? And so, I don't know, she might, she might try to litigate it. I don't know. It, I think she's talking about it. 
Well, um, I, I hope she does uh, because, yeah, there's a I difference between verifiable and verified. A, pa- a hand-marked paper ballot we know has been verified by its definition by the voter. Something that is verifiable is maybe verified, maybe not. And they were apparently so concerned about that settlement they had with Jill Stein where she was part of the settlement, Jenny, as I understand it, and correct me if you heard this differently, was that uh, her team had the right to be in any future uh, uh, certification testing of these machines or something, which is why apparently uh, it has been alleged anyway that Pennsylvania actually went out of state to do the re-exam. Had you heard that story as well? I didn't know she had that yeah. right under the agreement. That's yeah. interesting. That's um, what I hear. So, yeah, I, I mean, I hope, she, I hope she does it as well. I just, you know... I wish that uh, it hadn't come to this. I wish it would have been a lot easier. That's why I keep saying that clarity is so important with um, Mm -hmm. legislation. It's the same exact thing as with the settlement agreement. You you don't want to give any room. Vagueness will lead to these ballot marking devices. That's why it's so important to be specific that if you want something that is unhackable, you've got to say hand-marked paper ballots. You can't. Anything else? Um, anything else? Yeah. You might think voter marked paper ballots is a clever way to say the same thing. It's not. It's a trick. Yep. So, in any event, so there's that is happening, and then um, on the dark <laughs> side of things, again in Pennsylvania, yeah. um, they have their state department has been joining the call for uh, no strings election security funding, which means um, basically. So Mitch McConnell, you know, he recently approved 250 million dollars, and supposedly this was election security funding, mm-hmm. and people were saying he caved and. You know, the media was saying this is great. He caved, and what they weren't telling us, or maybe they didn't know, is that is that the only reason McConnell approved that funding is because he took out all the election security requirements. So it's another fraud on the public. They're calling election security funding without election security requirements is not election security funding. So, in other words, that they money could, spend- could go to yeah. anything they want. For example, these phony photo ID uh, restrictions, monitoring that, or anything right, like anything that. Anything election related, yeah. it could probably go to a coffee machine in the election office. Um, it could go to wireless modems. It, um, mm-hmm. it could go to remote access software. Mm. I, you know, it could go to anything election related. And so it's just a farce. And um, Pennsylvania, they, they want more money again with no strings. So they're they're as if they're have pr- they, and they have they kind of proved the point why they shouldn't why there has to be strings because they made these irresponsible yeah. decisions with the ballot marking devices. Um, and I want and to talk way, about you know, so, no, I want to talk about some of those solutions in a moment that are better than the Mitch McConnell solution. But uh, since you brought up Jill Stein, uh, you know one of the yeah. the reason that Jill Stein jumped in and challenged in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan is because Hillary Clinton did not, even though you know just uh, three votes for uh, cl- uh, for Clinton in each precinct instead of Trump, she would have become the president. So she had every right to challenge and to ask for hand count. And she she failed to do so. So Stein jumped in. The reason I'm mentioning this is because uh, this is not just an issue with Republicans in North Carolina. The Democratic majority state elections board shockingly voted to allow these unverifiable touchscreen voting systems in that state. Uh, just before, again, just before we left for a month. And I understand that Mecklenburg County, which I think is the state's largest county, they have also most now... Most populous, yeah. Most populous. They've now voted to use those systems, even with a Democratic-led county board of elections. And I've got a note here for myself, WTF, Jenny Cohen. I mean, w- it, this is well, not just a Republican issue. 
No, it's not. And the corruption that is behind a lot of these decisions and that seems to fuel a lot of these decisions is not just a Republican issue either. So ESNS is the that is the it was their express vote system that mm-hmm. was certified by the North Carolina Election Board. Mm-hmm. You know, against there was a lot of opposition actually. The North Carolina NAACP opposed it. Mm-hmm. I think either Common Cause or the League of Women Voters or both also opposed it. Mm-hmm. Um so their ESNS's agent in North Carolina is a company called Printelect that has made donations to both Democrats and Republicans within mm-hmm. the state of North Carolina, including the Democratic governor of North Carolina. I'm not saying it had anything to do with it. I just don't know that we know. And there's a, there's a psychological slash marketing principle called reciprocity where there's a sort of an almost um, irresistible human urge to reciprocate favors. So if you... You know, it's like the Hare Krishnas, when they started handing out flowers, they were able to make a lot of money, and they, they pulled themselves out of poverty into great riches because there's this impulse to give money or mm-hmm. give it return a favor, even if it's it's dramatically disproportionate to the gift mm-hmm. that you received. So having election vendors donating money to Democrats and Republicans or either one within um, election officials within a state is is really dangerous and inappropriate because you start making decisions based on reciprocity as opposed to security. And that is a good transition uh, to your video today, although I do want to point out one more because this was a phrase you, you mentioned, uh, let's say, voter-marked paper ballots, verif- voter-verifiable as opposed to verified paper ballots, or just paper ballots all sort of being code word for not actually paper ballots, but computer-marked ballot summary cards. Uh, there's one more yeah. uh, that uh, you left out there, which is the phrase "backup paper ballots," which we. Uh, this he- is Amy Klobuchar. Yes, yes. another Democrat. It's really disappointing. Assembly. Yeah, it really it, is. It's really disappointing because apparently she is the one who is now in charge of the Safe Act Election Security Bill, which is a really good bill that's passed the House. She's sort of the key sponsor, but it, I think it's procedural more than factual in the sense that she didn't really write this bill. It was other. It was Senator Ron Wyden who mm-hmm. originally wrote the Pave Act in the Senate that came the safe they, that was incorporated into the Safe Act in the House and passed there. Now it's back in the Senate, and apparently it's Senator Klobuchar's primary responsibility to promote the bill and to get other Democratic senators on board. And as far as I can tell, she's not doing that at all because she's. Not only is she not mentioning the, the SAFE Act by name, mm-hmm. she's not mentioning any of its requirements ever, and including the um, ban on these barcode ballot marking devices mm-hmm. and the requirement that at least all voters have the option to use hand-marked paper ballots. And instead, she is messaging backup paper ballots, which, yes, is code that can mean, it's insider lingo yeah. that she is well aware can mean ballot marking device. Yeah, why would you want backup paper ballots? The, you, that's the whole thing. The ballots are the whole thing. You have to count the ballots. They're not backups. They're not just in case we use them. I don't know, them. but we've really got to get this turned around because she's the one. We don't have much time to get the SAFE Act passed in time for it to make any difference for 2020, maybe another month. And I'm told that she is the one that we've that is really, in other words, other senators aren't going to be rallying other senators mm. to line up under the bill. It's really all her. And from what I can tell from the news reports, instead she is working out a, um, you know, meaningless election security reform with the Republicans, which it's one thing if, if you end out with something subpar, mm-hmm. but you need to at least tell people and start out with yeah. what the requirements are. And there's really no point in having a dog and pony show election, election security bill. 
So, I mean, I, I don't understand why she's not messaging the, the difference between handmarked paper ballots and barcode voting systems and that we have Internet-connected equipment, which would also be banned under the SAFE Act, and remote access would be banned under the SAFE Act. Um, Risk-limiting audits would be required. I'm just not hearing any of this messaging, so it almost feels like she's negotiating herself or just, just caving without a fight. Well, we have, a lot, of, we have a lot of listeners in, uh, in Minnesota, Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950. I hope that they can press their, uh, their senator there, Amy Klobuchar, to start getting this messaging right and, and change that bill so it mandates a hand-marked paper ballot for every voter in America. If that's all that this bill said, even if it didn't put money behind it, but it's said, you know, we must have hand-marked paper ballots for every voter who wants one, that would be a huge sea change. So with that in mind, now I need to take a quick break. So let me do that. Come back with Jenny Cohn to talk about her new video presentation that she posted to uh, Twitter today uh, about, well, the vendors and concerns about the private vendors who run our public election system. Uh, and maybe some solutions on what we can do about all of this. Jenny, stand by. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. What is love? Evidence is clear. I'm not alone. There are thousands of us here. Well, on Jenny Cohn's Twitter feed, anyway. This is my democracy. You won't go telling me my vote don't matter anymore. No, you won't go telling that to me. You won't go telling that to Jenny or to her Twitter army. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com speaking with attorney and election integrity advocate. Jennifer Cohen. Uh, okay, Jenny, uh, we're talking about the problems with our voting systems, the uh, ballot marking devices that are, you know, computerized and that uh, American voters cannot possibly oversee. Well, I want to get to this video that you made uh, that you put out today uh, on the Twitters. Let me play just the first uh, few seconds of that, and then I, I got some questions for you. Jenny Cohen, this is a, a video sure. presentation. Uh, I think it's your first one detailing some of the concerns. It's not my first. No, it's, not? it's my longest, though. Okay, good. Uh, details some of the concerns and, and recommended solutions to this problem. It starts this way. Hello, my name is Jennifer Cohen. I'm an attorney and election security advocate, and I'm making this video to warn the public that it is, in, it is in grave danger of being scammed by pretend fixes to our computerized election system. And I say this because I believe that the problems with our election system and the um, severity of the corruption 
tainting our election system and the amount of misinformation that has been circulating about our computerized election system, it, there's just a lot worse and a lot deeper than most people realize. And, of course, it is. You go on to detail a number of things. Uh, I want to ask you about yeah. a few of them here, Jenny. Sure. Uh, let's see. Uh, ESNS and Dominion Voting, these are two voting private voting vendors, account for 80% of U.S. election systems. Um, Dominion about 37%, ESNS around 40, 44%, and I actually think that number might be bigger for ESNS at this point. But I agree. Why, do, why does that matter as you see it? Well, because it means if when you have a virtual, I think it's called an oligopoly when it's more than one, but when you have just two, two or three vendors mm-hmm. um, with so much control over U.S. election equipment, it means that if there is a corrupt insider or... Um, corrupt outsider who hacks into the vendor, it can wreak havoc on the electronic elections throughout the United States. And I agree. That said, L.A. County, uh, where I live, is not using either ESNS or Dominion, but they have built what they call their own. Now, they did use a contractor to do it, but they built their own all-new, 100% unverifiable touchscreen BMD system from scratch. They claim it's open source, though L.A. has yet to release any of that so-called open source code. Uh, But it seems to me, Jenny Cohn, to prove that it doesn't really matter who makes these systems if the public cannot oversee them, no? It doesn't matter if the public cannot oversee them. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's sort of like an inside-out. I think it does... I think the public deserves to know who who is behind these voting system vendors. And by the way, L.A. County, um, it's uh, it partnered with Smartmatic, which mm-hmm. is a private vendor. I mean, right. it's hard to know the degree of influence that Smartmatic had over it, mm-hmm. but they did partner with them in building this system, which was involved in a rigged election, according to our CIA, in Venezuela, correct? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I think the reason – here's the reason why I think it mat- – why these things matter is nobody takes um, – most people don't get elaborate cameras and burglar alarms mm-hmm. and such if they think that there isn't a problem in their own neighborhood. And people will not take election security seriously unless they believe that it's a real threat. And they won't take the threat of corrupt insiders really seriously unless they realize that there's a real threat there. And I think that getting this type of information out to the public about some of the shadiness and red flags surrounding these vendors is very important in mm. terms of um, it, it, it's the type of transparency that can lead to meaningful action. I mm-hmm. think if you take it out of context and you say, oh, well, there's this vulnerability and that vulnerability, it all sounds very technical. Mm. And I don't think um, it, it, it engages people as much. And I, I just I don't think people take it seriously enough without realizing that no one is really guarding the hen house no one really knows who's behind these vendors and that's the reason why i put it forward it's mm-hmm. not that um if my brother were running the election if i would say that everything is is hunky dory necessarily mm-hmm. i think it could still be hacked and just because i trust my brother doesn't mean other people would have to right. have to trust my brother yeah. um so in that sense i mean i agree with you but i think it is relevant information and i think I think there's, you know, that that famous quote, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Mm -hmm. I think it goes into the history behind our electronic voting system, and this is how we learn from our past mistakes, uh, and this is how we we learn that there are threats, that that there's there's cause for alarm. Yeah. And And I I just don't think looking at it in the abstract or in isolation is, is nearly as compelling. 
Yeah, and I hear you. And of course, you know, uh, Jenny, that I've spent, uh, well, a long time at this point uh, documenting how the uh, vendors uh, lie constantly, how they cheat, mm-hmm. how they pay off election officials. Uh, you you talk about in your uh, video, which again, we'll link to, uh, you talk about who owns and controls the vendors and that they, these are private equity companies. Uh, and, and, that they they, won't t- and they won't disclose who's behind the private equity. Right. right. And they're bad actors and they're thugs. And I agree with every single piece of that. That said, even if it was the Pope who was running our elections, I just picked the Pope under the presumption he's trustworthy or, uh, you know, pick whoever you like, your brother, Jenny. Uh, it wouldn't matter if the public can't oversee them even, uh, you know, so that we know that and, they and haven't I been And I agree with that, yeah. but you have to get the public interested to advocate for these things, and they have to appreciate that this is not an abstraction. If it seems like an abstraction, if it just seems sort of hypothetical, yeah. um, that there's a threat, then nobody, people are going to focus on other things that seem like much more real, much more prescient mm-hmm. threats. Well, so that's that's why I bring it up, and it it all goes to transparent. It's just another par- aspect of transparency. Mm-hmm. And I'm with you. And I'm with you under hundred percent. It's just a question of well, you know, do we need to hand out all of this information that might allow people to say, oh, you're claiming a conspiracy or something? We're not claiming a conspiracy. Jenny's just pointing out the facts. Um, but ultimately, you know, nothing saves our election like public oversight. We can only have public oversight with hand-marked paper ballots. Right, but the, public oversight also yeah. involves having companies that mm-hmm. aren't owned by private equity, right? I, I think it does. Okay. I, think I, I mean, if you want, if, if trust in elections, we always hear about the importance of trust in elections. Mm-hmm. Hiding things does not, including ownership of the vendors, does not engender trust. I agree. Nor should it. Yeah. No, I agree with you. So. And, and, we'll, and we'll pick up this fight on another day because uh, I think we both agree it's just a matter of uh, yeah. what we're leaning towards uh, as far as trying to move the public, which... Exactly. It it's, takes... it's a matter of... Yeah. Strategy, I think. Well, it takes a village. Uh, Jennifer Cohen, you can find her on the Twitters at Jenny Cohn One, a very lively, very active Twitter account, very helpful and educational as far as this ongoing fight that I wish more and more people were paying attention to. Uh, that's Jennifer Cohn on the Twitters at Jenny Cohn One, and we'll talk to you again soon. Jenny, really appreciate you catching us up a little bit while I've been away. Keep up the good work. All right. Thank you very much for having me on the show again. You bet. All right. Uh, well, that was helpful. Yeah. That was helpful to know what the hell went on for the past month. Indeed. Uh, we're getting there. We're getting caught up. Uh, thank you. And uh, thanks to all of you for uh, for your patience as we try to get caught up here ourselves. Uh, so thanks to Jenny Cohn. Thanks to my producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other that we have ever done over the past, I don't know, 15 years, you can download it for free at bradblog.com. That is all thanks to those of you who support our work for all of those years by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate so that we can badmouth all the corporations we want and all the politicians we want. We need your help. Bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you in advance. You can also find, follow, and share everything we do on the Twitters where you'll find me at the Brad Blog. Always good to hear from you there and via email. I am Bradcast at Bradblog.com. That's it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs> <laughs>